Welcome to the Innovation Roundtable Insights Podcast. This episode was recorded at an Innovation Roundtable workshop hosted by IBM in New York in October 2018, where our colleague Leonard sat down with Prabdeep Singh, head of enterprise for Uber Eats. Prabdeep explains how Uber kept the flexibility and the agility of a startup while being a corporation. Furthermore, he brings us through the innovation journey of Uber Eats, starting from the early experiments to its commercialization, scale, and growth. Prabdeep, thank you very much for your presentation and uh, thank you for joining me in my little uh, pop-up studio. Mm -hmm. um, maybe we can start the interview by you just briefly uh, explaining who you are, uh, what company you work for and mm -hmm. uh, what role you have at the moment. Sure. Uh, my name is Prabdeep. Uh, I work uh, here based in New York City uh, for Uber. Uh, I actually work for Uber Eats, uh, where I lead our enterprise business in the U.S. Maybe you can give us a bit of an overview about kind of innovation or product development uh, within Uber and how that pr framework looks like and how Uber Eats fits into that. Yeah. Um, well, you know, Uber, Uber is a company that hasn't been around that long. Um, and so we've sort of been innovating since, since the beginning. Uh, and so innovation is very much tied into the DNA of everybody at the company where we're constantly thinking about what's next and what's new. Um, and a lot of it has to do with, uh, you know, the founding culture of the team. We were very much an entrepreneurial group. Um, we uh, moved incredibly fast. As some people know, um, probably the fastest growing startup of all time. And so speed is a big part of our DNA. And so anytime we come up with something that we, we think is interesting, uh, there's a natural inclination to move very fast. Uh, so it's a big part of the culture and it has a big impact on how we think about innovation too. How is it possible? Because you mentioned it yourself, Uber has been growing quite quickly uh, uh, over a very short amount of time. Mm -hmm. How is it possible or how, what, is the, what are the challenges of keeping that flexibility and agility that a startup has while Uber is almost, uh, can be described as a corporation. Yeah, it's very tough. I think um, I talked a little bit about today in my talk, but um, a lot of it comes down to the people, to be honest. We have a lot of young people who are, who are um, very entrepreneurial, and that, that DNA helps us um, not get uh, stuck in corporate culture. There's a lot of people whose first job was at Uber, and so they don't have a lot of preconceived notions about maybe working at a big, big Fortune 500 company. I think that helps the culture. We celebrate failure. A big thing about um, a company like Uber is testing things is a big part of how we learn and very okay in our culture to, to try things and to, and to learn from them. Maybe you can give us a bit of an overview of Uber Eats, how it, um, how it is organized from an organizational perspective and also physically where's the team working mm -hmm. um, because it is something that is also globally. Yeah, um, so Uber Eats um, is uh, all over the world now. We're in over 300 different cities. Um, and so I would say you have a lot of the core technology teams split across New York and San Francisco, and those people are in global roles. Um, you also have a lot of people that are doing um, kind of more global functions based in the U.S. And then um, across the world, you have teams that are managing the businesses um, remotely uh, or, or from, from those places. So, for example, you might have a team in Amsterdam that's managing, you know, the European market. Um, and so um, I would say at one point in time, we had people everywhere. Uh, in the last year, we have started to bring that in a little bit and, and have sort of centers. Um, so, you know, we have our, our hub in Europe is primarily in, in Amsterdam and the U.K. Our hub in America is both in New York and San Francisco, um, so the vast majority of Uber Eats employees are there, uh, and kind of similar across other regions where we have a hub. 
you mentioned um, milestones and also funding connected to milestones, which is really something that is very common and, and the standard in the, in the startup world. Mm -hmm. <coughs> Maybe you can talk a bit about how you're dealing with those kind of um, fundings that are really tagged to or really closely connected to some of the milestones and how you manage that. Yeah, um, you know, I would say that uh, with Uber Eats, we were lucky enough to have a lot of support. And so while we did have milestones, we had growth KPIs, things of that nature, um, the initial focus was very much just, you know, grow and grow fast. Um, and so I'd say actually initially we didn't have a lot of milestones. It was really in a way where the leadership team let us grow unencumbered because they knew that was the best way for us to really um, get to some level of scale, you know, answer some really tough questions about the model, things like that. And then I would say now as a business, given our scale and size, we really do have a milestone approach. But um, again, uh, given the strong support from Dara and the leadership team for Uber Eats, uh, it's not a, you know, let's make this thing inc incredibly profitable. It's, it's let's build the best business possible. And if that means growth, if that means leaning into supporting restaurants more, then let's do that. And let's not worry about just having a, a really healthy P&L. <clears throat> Maybe you can take us a bit through the journey, kind of with the early experiments of trying to get it right, yeah. and and now more or like re more recently, really trying to commercialize, scale, and grow. Mm -hmm. um. Yeah, the early journey is always the fun part. Uh, you know, we when Uber Eats started, it was actually a very different business model. It was basically a restaurant would make a lot of the same dish. So if it was like a burger place, they'd make a hundred burgers or fifty burgers in the morning. They'd give them to one driver in that person's trunk, and then you would have be able to get lunch in 15 minutes. Not a scalable business model at all, but we learned how to talk to restaurants. We learned a little bit about food. Um, that led us to our marketplace model that we have today. And, you know, honestly, even until now, there's just a ton of experimentation, again, back to the culture of saying, okay, well, you know, uh, can we use bikes? Okay, well, if we use bikes, then we can't have pizzas on those bikes because how do you have pizzas on bikes? So maybe, like, we have to block up that pairing. Um, Small things like, you know, uh, when you have ice cream, you can only deliver it so far. So let's make sure our algorithm accounts for ice cream. Um, let's try new stuff. And so we're just constantly thinking about what's the future of food delivery, what's the future of food, and, and we're trying new things on the model. So I would say um, a big part of our success has been that culture, again, of experimentation. Um, in terms of, like, where we are today in scale, I'd say, uh, you know, it's, it's not easy. Uh, to take a business that three years ago didn't exist, now, like I said, is this massive global food delivery company, and um, run it in a very, very uh, you know central way. So I think a lot of what you might feel is a bit of a um, push and pull between central and decentral. So the questions we have to face are, you know, how many regional teams do we need to have, and how many teams, to, and how much of stuff can we run centrally? You need the regional teams because of the insight locally and the ability to innovate and be connected to your customers. Um, but at a certain point in time, you have to make a decision about whether you bring that back. So that's an example of a, like a, a tough scaling question we're wrestling with. And I guess let me ask you a question about kind of the parallel, you know, if, if there are any uh, parallels between kind of, there are many, but especially when it comes to uh, kind of the taxi service or the, the people delivering service that Uber started with, And the food delivery, I guess, the people delivery is more homogeneous across the world yes. rather than where it's very local and, and specific to users that are very different in, in, in different parts of the world. How, yes. did you, how much could you learn from the core business in terms of that and how much did you actually have to probe and experiment yourself? Yeah, it's an excellent question, actually. And it's, it's something that I don't think Uber 
initially thought about enough. Um, but what we really need is a restaurant engagement model, right? Because restaurants, you know, so riders and drivers, that's two people, that's a two-sided marketplace. Eaters, restaurants, and, and, and drivers, that's a three-sided business model. And, and also to your point, you know, a burger from here and here, it, it could be very different, whereas a Toyota Camry here and here is the same thing always, you know? Um, or a Honda Civic and a Toyota Camry are pretty much the same thing. And so um, this is why we are spending so much time and money building uh, B2B business uh, for Uber Eats, where we you know, have sales, and account, sales managers, account managers actually going in and building relationships with the restaurants um, for the sole purpose of keeping them happy, but also so that we have the best selection. Because the way to do what you're talking about is so if I open up the Uber Eats app in any, any city in the world, I have a good pizza place, a good Chinese place, a good sushi place, et cetera, et cetera, so that I get what I want. And so that's, that's a lot of what we spend our time thinking about now. Let me ask you about almost a, a bit of a leadership question uh, is about uh, killing projects or small initiatives. Mm -hmm. um, it can be like larger projects, which would be Uber Eats as a, as a whole, mm -hmm. but also within Uber Eats, many different kind of ideas and initiatives. How are you going about really stopping things when you see that they are not working? How do you deal with the people that were involved and so on? Um, well, there's a, a lot to do it over. So I think one of the good things is, you know, um, again, so number one, we celebrate failure. So people that are doing those things, if you failed, it doesn't mean you're fired and you have to leave the company. It just means we're going to put you onto something else and it's not going to be a bad thing, right? So number one, you put the right people in those roles and, and they feel comfortable about their job security. Uh, number two, we have so much to do that there's, there's unlimited amounts of opportunity at Uber, I think, and so people don't feel like they won't have a job afterwards. And then in terms of killing projects, I think, you know, this is sometimes the places where we might even um, kill things too fast. <laughs> you know, we are such a fast-paced company. We're growing so quickly. And sometimes it's hard to think long-term because you're going so fast every day. And so sometimes you see something not working and you say, well, maybe we should shut that down. So I think actually our problem is the opposite that some big companies have, which is maybe we're killing things too quickly. Let me ask you kind of a, a very re related question about teams. Um, what is a good performing team and what are some of the qualities or personalities or the composition of it? What do you see in, in your work? Yeah, it depends obviously on all sorts of things, but um, I would say generally speaking, um, truthfully, any team needs a great leader. The leader sets the direction, the culture. They allow people to be who they are. They manage people well. So um, at the end of the day, the leader is the one who's going to set that, right? Um, and it's not that the team is important, but if you don't have a great leader, it doesn't matter how great the individuals are. So I do think really good management's important in any team. The other thing I'd say is um, you want to find people that are complementary and different from each other. Uh, I think it's not a good idea to have people that are all the same. You end up with groupthink problems. Sometimes you don't have people to challenge you as much. Um, you, know, you know, you don't necessarily need to mandate it, but I like the idea of having people with different backgrounds, race, gender, sexual orientation, whatever it is, because they're going to experience the world in a different way and they're going to see things you haven't seen. And so you do it that way, you bring people from different industries, um, and then you get the best answers. If you have everybody the same, like, you might not get to the best answers, especially as you grow and scale and your business becomes more complex. What is then important for that leader? What are the leadership kind of qualities or, or traits that leader should have? Um, it, again, it just it depends on the situation, but I would say um, as a leader, uh, I try to be um, clear and candid all the time. Uh, there's no point in sugarcoating things um, if you don't uh, sugarcoating. I mean, you can you can be nice and sympathetic and empathetic to people, but you have to be clear and direct. Um, you know, it doesn't help someone to not give them feedback, right? It actually hurts them in the long run. So I always take that approach with people that I manage. 
Um, I also try to really understand what makes individuals, what motivates them. Everybody's different. Some people are motivated by money. Some people are motivated by pride and, and success and recognition and, um, and other people, other stuff. And then some people don't like to be managed. And sometimes that's okay. Uh, but if you don't know enough about the person, um, then you're not going to manage them well. You're gonna, and then they're going to leave or they're going to get unhappy or they're not going to do good work. So it's really just about knowing every individual that you manage well. Let me go back a bit <clears throat> with the intention towards really figuring out customer needs. And this is, was really true in the beginning. And it is, of course, an ongoing uh, process all the time. Um, what are some of the methods uh, for especially also uncovering that more latent needs or unspoken uh, of, of you know, either of your stakeholders in the equation? So I think it's really important that the people that are talking to customers, oftentimes sales teams, account management teams, customer success, it depends on what, how, how, that's, how it is in different companies, um, on the B2B side and then on the, on the B2C side, maybe it's more the product uh, itself. Um, it's really important that that voice of customer has a direct feedback loop to every part of the business. So um, when you see problems is when people aren't listening to their customers and they aren't getting to know their customers. So it's not that, you know, customers will pretty much tell you everything, you know, and they will tell you more than you want to know. And so it's, but the problem is people aren't listening to them and they aren't listening to them enough. Uh, and so it's about making sure that you um, are really capturing as much customer insight and then it's, it's coming back to the entire organization. Now, how do you do that well? The people that do that need to be a very important team. Uh, they can't be like the customer service arm that no one talks to. It can't be a sales team that's in a different office and no one talks to. It has to be an important team um, that people actually want to hear from. Because otherwise, customer insight gets lost, you don't get the real-time good information, and you build the wrong product or you do the wrong thing. Let me ask you about then if you know, some of the ideas and, and you know, user insights are not clear, but there's a good idea about it, and then you start experimenting with some of the solutions or solution propositions how do you do that with a quite a valuable brand that already has some quality connected to it and some uh, how do you start experimenting like the typical minimum viable product thinking mm -hmm. with mm -hmm. a brand that has value and can potentially be damaged it's a good question and um here's how i would here's how i would talk first of all um sometimes there's no easy way you have to do it because part of what you're selling is your brand so i think to a certain degree you can't hide behind you, you can't, you can't, you have to put your brand front and center. Um, and I think it's about being really clear and transparent with people always. Um, you can't pretend it's something that's not. Um, if it's something new, you have to tell customers that it's new and that you're, you're trying it out. Um, so I think what ends up happening sometimes is big brands um, are afraid to try things because they're worried about what their customers might think. But customers like the fact that you're innovative. And, and if you're solving a pain point for them, they'll be happy that you're solving it, and they'll give you some slack, especially if you build a good relationship with them. Mm. And so I don't, I, think, I, I don't think that's that as big of a concern as people think, number one. And then number two would just be that um, at the end of the day, like, um, if you're really, really worried about what you're putting in front of your customer, then maybe there's a reason for that, and you should reevaluate what it is. Because fundamentally, in my opinion, like, you should be very happy to say to your customer, here's a new thing that I believe is valuable. Um, what's wrong with that? I think that's a great thing. You should like, celebrate it. You were talking about cultures in the beginning and culture being important. And then also in your talk, you talk about kind of different cultures, especially in the early beginnings when you want to do something new and there is already a, a big core business that you need that separation Yes. in your, one of your buckets of called structure. Yes. Um, <laughs> how, how do you manage kind of those different cultures? And especially also, how do you bring those 
might, they might be diverting cultures back together. That's really hard. Um, part of the way that you do that, like I said, is you have to, you want to make sure the business is connected to the, it, it's, it's not like you're putting someone on an island, right? It, they, number one, you want to bring people who are already part of the business because they're going to know the existing culture and they're going to already have some of that in their DNA. So you're not going to be so far away from it. And this is why I suggest don't just bring in outsiders and have it be completely outside driven because that, then you have that big, a bigger cultural gap. Um, the second thing is, I think, you have to do a really good job of um, showing, managing up and managing sideways and managing downwards, meaning you have to constantly be showing the organization um, the value that you're bringing once you get to a certain scale and level they, they, so that they understand what you're doing and why it's important. Um, and so one of the things people fail at is they want to be stealth for so long and they want to be this cool thing that no one hears about. Um, but I, I think you've got to be careful with doing that too much. And then I think the last thing is, is like you have to be humble about your failures because people like an underdog. And so, you know, you have to, when you make a mistake in a new initiative, you have to talk about it and talk about how you've learned from it. Um, you don't want to be this cool startup person that wears jeans and everybody wears suits and like, you know, you never, you never make a mistake. Like, that's not true. Because if you're not making mistakes, you're probably not building anything valuable. Last question, broader question. How do you think innovation is changing, has changed the last 10, 10, 15 years maybe? Um, well, there's a couple different elements to that. I mean, one is that I think everybody's being disrupted, right? Everything is being disrupted. The, the technology has provided an environment where, like, the whole world is changing. And so the Fortune 500 is going to look different in 20 years and 50 years and 100 years. So I think just, like, innovation as a concept is no longer a small, a small thing. Like, everybody thinks about it. It's, if you're not a leader and you're not thinking about your business model and innovation, you're probably not a great leader. Um, another thing I'd say about innovation and how it's changed is just that, like, you know, it's a lot easier to do things than it was before. I mean, you can change things quickly. You can, you have more access to data and insights than you ever had before. And so I think being able to do things um, and move your business and change it is actually easier than it ever was. Um, and then, you know, look, one of the other things that, that I've noticed when it comes to just, like, innovation as a concept is that um, um, it's more, we're definitely at a place in our sort of, like, history where um, people are understanding that uh, the way that we did things for 100 years in business is maybe not exactly the right way to do things. And so there's more appetite for people to say, for example, um, you know, the way that we uh, people work should change. And so working remotely, wearing different clothes, like all these other things that, that create a fun work environment, people are finally adapting to that being important and being okay. And then I would say also on that note, um, You know, the, the people that are going to be the best leaders of tomorrow are people that I think have this, what I call like a frontier skill set. Um, they're people that have been in these changing and fast-changing environments. They're people that are comfortable with that type of level of change and disruption. They're not the people that necessarily are going to be um, extremely risk-averse and just want to stay at a company for 50 years. And so I think you're going to see a different type of profile emerge and be CEOs where maybe those people wouldn't have been CEOs before. So I think all those things are going to happen in the next X number of years, and it's just going to change the whole business landscape. Thanks a lot once again yeah. for your presentation, and uh, thanks for that interesting uh, and pleasant conversation. Okay, thanks, Andre. Appreciate it. Thanks. The video version of this podcast can be accessed via innovationroundtable.online. The Innovation Roundtable online network is your portal to a wide variety of exclusive content, including video presentations, interviews, insights reports, and articles. Not only that, innovationroundtable.online is also a place where you can connect with other corporate innovators, share experiences, 
request collaborations, and gain inspiration from your peers. Our network is exclusively for innovation practitioners in large firms, so visit innovationroundtable.online to discover more and request your seven-day free trial account.